0: Got a special episode today. I am joined by two of my colleagues from the Blockworks research team, Dan Smith and Sam Martin. Guys, great to have you here.
1: Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks
0: for having me. You guys uh, are going to start a podcast that will air on November 2nd called Zero X Research. And I want to hear all about that. But because it's a macro show, I want to ask how do people in crypto think about macro? Every asset class this year has had a drawdown except for energy stocks but you know tech stocks all, all sorts of stocks bonds uh, interest rates are on the move every commodity except for oil is pretty much is pretty much going down so everything's going down no one is having any fun except for people who own a specific type of, of stock um and, and crypto is, is no different so you know let's sam let's, let's start with you when when you know crypto had a bad day let's say the first day of the the Blockworks Digital Asset Summit in September uh, Ethereum came in real hot. Sorry, sorry. Inflation came in real hot. And every single risk asset, the NASDAQ, S&P uh, bonds did very poorly. And Ethereum was sort of joining in, 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 the, in the chaos. So when you have a bad macro day that results in a crypt, bad crypto day, how do you sort of think about that? And, and how do you navigate that?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's no denying like how bad macro has been year to date. I mean, the 60-40 portfolio, I'm pretty sure, is off to its worst start in the last 40 years. So crypto is definitely not uh, any different on that front. We definitely suffer drawdowns in line with the macro uh, headlines. Uh, I'm honestly surprised, though, that Bitcoin and ETH have been able to hold the levels that they have. Uh, we're still hovering you know above nineteen thousand on Bitcoin and above thirteen hundred on on eth and that's kind of been the floor and where stocks and where bonds have gone has has been pretty low so i I'm honestly shocked with how well it's actually held up um in in terms of like macro trends that I pay attention to within the crypto space Bitcoin dominance is often referred to as kind of like a uh, a macro metric in our little niche industry. Uh, and it's still hovering above 42%. And also, if you take into account the amount of stable coins uh, that are in the space now and how much those have grown, I think those metrics are even a little bit more skewed compared to, to, to previous bull markets or bear markets, sorry. But uh, in general, it's something that we need to pay attention to. And that's actually why I love working at BlockWorks so much, because I'm always you know, talking with you, Jack, in Slack or, or Byron, who writes the new let- newsletter or Someone else and trying to like just comprehend as much as I can on this space because I know how important it is uh, uh, to asset prices and the way funds move on chain. Um, but yeah, definitely not my area of expertise. And uh, it's the reason I listen to your podcast every week.
0: Yeah. And Dan, I want to ask you the same question, but I maybe also ask you how do you, you know, as an investor, think about navigating a bear market in crypto in a bull market? it's easy or at least, you know, it seems easy in retrospect, you just go into the most sort of risk apparent thing. I believe a uh, colleague, Matt was telling me it's called the left, left curbing. Um, so for example, in, you know, uh, the summer of 2020 in TradFi, just like why buy high quality stock like Apple when you can buy, you know, an extremely speculative electric vehicle company uh, out of China, you know what I mean? Like, like something like that, like just all risk, like drive to, you know, uh, put, put your uh, pedal on the metal. Um, but, and so in crypto, you know, that's the same thing, like Dogecoin stuff like that. But now that we're in a different regime, like, how do you think about navigating, navigating that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I would kind of like echo Sam's remarks and, I don't like. It's hard to see a world where crypto really, uh, in terms of like asset asset prices, like crypto takes off and macros just like kind of stuck and stalling out and just kind of uh, you know kind of fighting the with up, up, uphill battle. Uh, so that it, it is definitely something we pay attention to. Um, you know, I'm definitely spending a vast majority of my time kind of like in the weeds and you know studying tokenomics and things of that nature. So I just kind of like look at macro from like a, a sentiment gauge and like, okay, like are we in a uh, like are we in an environment that would uh, kind of be favorable to be investing in those high risk assets you mentioned, you know, like the Doge coins of the world or, uh, you know, some of the uh, more Ponzi like investments that exist out there, you know, try to stay away from uh, from those for the most part. But uh, there's definitely been some good run ups that we've seen and some super high risk assets. Uh, but in a more of a bear market, when things are kind of like, you know, in this lull uh, and there's not like these crazy pumps you're seeing, Uh, you know, I kind of like, first of all, I'm usually locked into stables and farming on. uh, So when I say farming, that's like, you know, depositing my tokens into liquidity pools and farming the rewards that you get for being uh, an LP and providing your liquidity to those pools. Uh, So other traders will use your liquidity to execute trades. Uh, and in turn, you generate uh, fee, fee revenue from the transaction fees going through the pool, uh, generally, as well as some liquidity incentives. So uh, like the protocol will incentivize you to be in this pool. Uh, and so you can do this pretty effectively with stable coins uh, through the protocol Curve. Uh, so Curve is, you know, it was originally built to facilitate swaps between stable coins. It's since expanded to uh, so also include like stable coin pairs alongside uh, like volatile assets like, you know, or wrapped Bitcoin. Uh, and the returns can be like pretty like they're obviously modest right like you know uh, when you see something like Dogecoin that does a thousand percent gains you're like oh, oh my gosh like that 's where I got to be uh, and you know if you 're farming on farming stable coins on uh, you know like protocol like curve in the depths of a bear market. You know, you're, you're kind of sitting around that 2 to 5% range, but like, you know, I'm pretty comfortable when my assets are there. You know, I'm in like high quality stable coins that I don't really fear uh, about having to go through a DPEG risk or uh, anything of that nature. So uh, kind of that's generally my game plan is to kind of sit and wait and uh, usually in these stable coin farms. And then once I think, you know, we're kind of heading up, uh, a little more risk on, uh, then I start buying like the blue chip assets. Right. So for me, that's generally Ethereum. Uh, and now in the proof-of-stake post-merge post world that we're uh, kind of in right now, uh, the staking reward uh, on staked ETH, so like depositing my Ethereum to help secure the network, uh, that's hovering around like 6 or so percent. Uh, and that's like a great way to just kind of be earning Ethereum on your Ethereum. So. Uh, that's kind of where I'm at now. Currently, I'm, you know, I'm taking adding a little bit more risk. I'm feeling a bit, a bit more comfortable uh, with where we are. And, you know, the market's kind of shown us a good run up these past couple of days. Um, you know, I think we're up towards the $1,500 range on Ethereum. Uh, so yeah, I'm a big fan of like trying to always just be earning like passive yield. And uh, for me right now, definitely looking at uh, liquid staking solutions for Ethereum.
2: Yeah, just to touch on that too, Jack, if you don't mind if I butt in. Like I think two important points to add there too are I think we've lost a lot of institutional like capital just because bond yields are so high right now. Like it's not really worth taking the smart contract risk, the custody risk to deposit into these stable farms if you're making less than you would on the 10-year. So I think that's really key. And then I also think another key differentiator in a bear market for crypto versus equities, let's say, is there's always a narrative like for example, there's this one Perpetuals platform that lets you speculate on Forex, and that token has popped off because people are speculating on Forex. If there's something to speculate on in crypto, it will be speculated on. So I think there's always an opportunity to make money, but uh, but yeah.
0: And just to be clear, Forex, that's TradFi Forex, that's foreign exchange, like currencies, like Japanese yen, stuff like that.
2: Correct. Yeah. So, with all the currency volatility, like that, that was kind of a narrative that if you would have used your macro hat and then also your crypto hat, you probably could have sniffed that one out and made some good money.
0: Yeah. There we go. And, Dan, just a point about you in a period of risk off, you're going into stable coins. Stable coins are like bonds in that they are supposed to be safe asset. You mentioned that deep pegging risk and that deep pegging risk can be quite extreme. But, you know, if, if the stable coin is. Backed by something and it maintains its peg, you know, you're getting two percent, you're getting three percent, and you're you're not taking that sort of like mark to market risk. Um, So that's just a parallel that you know, when when people when um, in traditional finance, when stocks sell off almost all the time, bonds do well because there's a bid to safety. That's why this year has been different because of inflation. Um, So you're saying now, Sam, ten year yields higher than the. Uh, stablecoin yield.
2: Yeah, stablecoin yields right now are you know somewhere around one, one and a half percent. So it's just not really worth the risk, especially for professional money managers. Even some people who are you know crypto native funds like they're better off parking their capital in in, in bonds and and not in stablecoin pools. So liquidity just isn't quite as good as it was during the bull market, of course.
1: Right, and and just to kind of go on that point, if you're going for like the least risky way to earn yield on a stablecoin in DeFi, that would be depositing your asset into uh, a lending protocol, like pretty much only Aave or Compound in my opinion, because those are two very well-respected, very established um, DeFi protocols and they uh, they have a great teams that built them. They were you know, around and have innovated significantly since uh, their inception. Uh, and the, like, it's definitely not a non, it's a still a non-zero chance that like an exploit occurred uh, on these protocols, but it's quite low, right? Like there's billions of dollars that have been sitting in these smart contracts for years now, uh, and they've yet to experience an exploit. Uh, so that would be like your lowest risk way uh, to earn yield. And as Sam said, like, yeah, the, the stablecoin rates are not great. Uh, they've dropped from the past six months, they've fallen from about two two percent to one percent, uh, and so yeah, like if you can earn money uh, in the ten year backed by the U.S. government, like that would definitely be uh, the better option at the moment. Mm.
0: And I guess that it's it's all about supply and demand. The reason that stablecoin yields are so low is because everyone wants safety, and no one wants to borrow. So that's the um, demand for the asset, but demand to borrow is very low because no one wants to borrow to buy bitcoin or or far fewer right so there's no pressure driving rates upward. Precisely. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um that makes sense. So I know you guys have a, prepared a lot of uh interesting charts.
1: Yeah, so this is a site called ultrasound money or ultrasound.money um and it's it's a great way to visualize the supply change for Ethereum post-merge. So uh, the merge occurred uh, about a month or so, but a month and change ago. Um, and that was a transition from proof of work to proof of stake consensus. Uh, so proof of work uh, is, you know, it, uh, we'll kind of like touch on what these things are. So proof of work uh, is a consensus al- a algorithm that is essentially you have to solve a very complex math problem uh, to Basically, prove that everything is correct in the block, uh, and once you solve that problem, then you are you get the reward, and you, that block gets added to the change. Or excuse me, added to the chain. Um, and proof of stake works a bit differently, so uh, they're no longer miners; they're now just validators. Uh, and it, this changes a couple of things. One of the most important takeaways here is we now have like twelve a rigid twelve se- second block time uh, on Ethereum, so every twelve seconds a new block gets added. Um, and so one of the biggest changes here is without this need to constantly incentivize miners, uh, to be verifying blocks, we now, uh, can reduce the supply of, uh, Ethereum. Like, right. We don't have to be playing these massive block rewards to miners to, to come like solve these math problems for us. Um, and what this has done is created, uh, an environment where the Ethereum, the asset can become deflationary. Uh, And so, if you see there in the top right, it says supply change since the since the merge, and that's a thousand ETH. Uh, and so, if we hadn't merged and we were still on this proof of work network, uh, we would actually have created about four hundred and ninety one thousand ETH, which is roughly about seven hundred and fifty million dollars. Uh, and you know, miners want to take this profit and lock it in because they have electricity costs to run these machines, uh, and so they're generally like selling a portion of this reward that they're earning. Uh, essentially to cover their costs and and to like lock in a profit. So we've basically removed around $750 million worth of sell pressure from the Ethereum ecosystem right now. Uh, and that's pretty pretty crazy because there's been little to no on-chain activity in the depths of this bear market. Um, you know, gas is generally like right now it's at 21 uh, Guay. So like the base fees are quite low. Um, and we're, we've seen this like inflationary, uh, or actually, ex- excuse me, like this recent change, uh, to deflationary. And, uh, this is like, there's a big takeaway here is like, okay, well, when the bull market returns and on-chain activity gets really hot again, and everybody's like, you know, trying to take out, uh, leveraged loans through like Aave or Compound, or, uh, there's more incentive to try to like chase different trades going through Uniswap. Uh, there's other DeFi protocols, maybe a new, uh, NFT primitive get, uh, comes to the scene. And now NFTs are hot again, right? There's more reasons to be transacting on chain. Uh, The base fees will increase and more Ethereum will get burned. uh, And then the supply chain change will likely turn negative and and Ethereum will become a deflationary asset. Uh, I think that's going to be like a huge narrative we see get pushed throughout the the return of the bull market.
0: Okay. Thanks, Dan. Just to... You know, rather than say explain things for the audience, ex- explain it for myself. Um, so, like on a day when Ethereum's up six percent, like odds are Bitcoin is going to be up as well. Like probably a little bit less than that. Cardano is probably going to be up. Uh, you know, Polkadot's probably going to be up. And I feel like you see that in this in TradFi too, where like uh, realized correlations between stocks particularly in an index, particularly the biggest ones are high. Like if Apple's up 2%, unless it's an earnings day, which I actually think it is literally today, um, then you're going to have, you know, Microsoft's going to be up as well. Um, So that makes sense. But then, so that's sort of the macro thing, which is, you know, what this show is all about. But in traditional finance, you know, I'll be first to admit, like on the long term, it really, you really did get a big difference between like, oh, which company is going to be better, Cisco or Apple? You know, like that's a huge difference. So that is where I feel like, a lot a bulk of the uh, blockworks research comes in is on which protocols are good and stable and growing and have a lot of talented people working for them and are launching new protocols that are actually being delivered upon and not just like hype and which are sort of just like uh you know bs um so so i think i think that's important and so what you're saying is that yeah this transition from the eth merge and you know i'm not going to pretend that i understand this but like i actually think i interviewed a crypto miner the day of the merge the day before the merge so it was like their last day mining Ethereum and they would have gotten rewarded by that, by that 750 million. Now they're not. So the supply is not increasing by as much. And then also the supply is affected when people use it a lot, like by burning Ethereum, burning ETH, excuse me. Um, So like when, um, you know, people, if people want to do tons of stuff like flash loans, like NFTs, as you were saying, they burn ETH. Now not a lot of ETH is being burned because it's a bear market, not a lot of on-chain activity. But when that returns, you're saying it will, it will go down. So your, your uh, outlook, like obviously this is relative to the whole crypto market, but your, your outlook on ETH, Dan and Sam is quite positive. Uh, would, and I think most people who to me seem like they know more than crypto sound like they typically agree with it. Would that be fair to say, Dan and Sam, that your outlook on ETH is positive?
1: Yeah, there's yeah. just a huge ecosystem that's built on top of ETH. The L2 scaling solutions are starting to come to life. Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, traction gaining there, um, and yeah, the, I think the deflation narrative literally cannot be understated. Once that number goes negative, you're going to see that all over Twitter. That's what people are going to be talking about. That's what's going to get circled around. You know, every now and then, crypto gets its uh, its moments on CNBC, uh, and that's that's what they're going to be talking about is how there's this like new deflationary asset.
2: Yeah. And even Bitcoin itself, like it has about a one point seven five percent inflation rate per year right now. And I mean, if you look at that chart, like it's it's point zero zero nine, and that's during bear market block space demand. Like once that activity picks up and it becomes deflationary, you no longer require a new marginal buyer to pick up that extra issuance. So I that's really the only asset in crypto that uh that has that quality. So I think it's super valuable. All
0: right. Um two of these charts I feel like are a little over my head. Uh, let's actually look at this stablecoin dominance index, which we were looking at earlier, which makes a lot of sense. So this is what percentage of the market cap of crypto is in stablecoins, which are essentially bonds. And yes, bond, you know, bo- bonds as, as in TradFi, bonds can go to zero in TradFi, stablecoins can go to zero in crypto. But that that being said, like they are sort of the risk-off thing. And yeah, you know, a year and a half ago, they were less than five percent of the market cap, and now, wow, they're over fifteen percent. So huge a huge rush to safety that we're seeing there um that that makes sense all right dan so you just shared a uh chart with us and i'm seeing it says bribe revenue so what is bribe revenue what are all these terms what is cvx What what are we talking about here
1: okay perfect so first of all we definitely need to pick a new term for this as an industry because bribe has such a negative connotation in like everything other than this one subset of crypto but uh so yeah this is uh the rewards that flow to CVX token holders. And so CVX is the uh, protocol asset of a, uh, a platform called Convex Finance. And Convex Finance is a yield aggregator uh, that's built on Ethereum mainnet. And basically the purpose of uh, Convex is to simplify and amplify returns for users. Um, and so if I am a, a liquidity provider in the cur- into another protocol called Curve, uh, curve is a, is a decentralized exchange that facilitates swaps between assets so if i'm a liquidity provider and i'm letting other traders use my liquidity for asset uh for to facilitate swaps uh basically then they're paying me fees to do so um the liquidity management section of this is like it's not like super user friendly uh, and like maximizing your rewards takes a bunch of work and it's like uh there's a whole lot of maintenance that goes into it uh so convex was built just to like Basically abstract that all away from the user, um, and basically instead of directly depositing my assets into the decentralized exchange curve, I can instead give them to Convex, and Convex will take everybody's assets together, deposit them into Curve on our behalfs, and then do all this like maintenance work on the back end to, uh, to be maximizing the returns that flow to the users. Uh, so in in essence, like. We throw this. We throw convex into like this yield aggregation subsector of De- DeFi, um, and again, like their main purpose is to simplify and optimize. That's, that's okay, so that sounds
0: like a kind of like a bond ETF. Like rather than just like oh, I'm buying a bond of some company, which you know the minimum bid is like probably like a million dollars or something. Like, how about we put a thousand of those bonds into an ETF, and I can buy one share of that ETF for like ten dollars. My question is, are those um who cho- like, who chooses what are the yield protocols? Like, is it just a passively managed, like, all the protocols, or is it like a certain rules based approach, or are they being selected by a particular person?
1: Yeah, so this is a rules based approach. Um, Convex has like, they service two protocols, Frax Finance and Curve Finance. Uh, and within each of those protocols, they have their own set of rules that are slightly different, but like the same general premise. Um, and so, yeah, there's like, when I give my assets to, Convex, I'm like telling them specifically what I, where I want them to go, um, and so they do all this backend work, uh, and that's generating a ton of revenue for their users, uh, and and so like they use a portion of that revenue, uh, and they can like kind of point to different users, uh, like user groups within their protocol, right? So uh, the LPs get about ninety percent of this revenue, but then the uh, so, so let me back up. So the way that they like maximize rewards for these users uh, is by they have a, they own like a large portion of the governance token for Curve Finance, and so owning the governance token for Curve allows them to control where new emissions go. So basically, they get to they are actively voting in which liquidity providers are getting the most rewards, and that's kind of how they uh, are able to maximize returns for their users. And so that's like the, the goal of this uh, protocol is essentially, again, to optimize and simplify. And so <clears throat> the governance token of Convex Finance is CVX. And when I lock that in the protocol to uh, basically confer, like that gives me governance rights over Convex. And that token, CVX, uh, j- has pretty consistently generated between a 20 and 40% return. Uh, paid in that- what?
0: Pa- paid in Convex? You stake one Convex, you get. Tw- convex over the year or 0.4 depending, you know,
1: yeah. So, the beauty of these rewards is they're not just inflationary rewards, uh, like a lot of these protocols do. This is like very much so real yield. Uh, you actually get no inflationary rewards in this 20 to 40 percent. Um, and so this is, yeah, so it's real real yield, and we'll get to what it's paid to or what it's paid in in a second. Uh, and so, but
0: but, but I feel sorry, sorry. I feel like, um, when you say so non inflationary would mean that it's paid in curve, the CVX, the curve token, because it's like, if I'm, you know, if, if you're borrow from me, like Jack coin, but like, I'm paying you a hundred percent, but I'm just, I'm just making money from nothing. Cause that's super inflationary. So like, yeah, what, what is it paid into? Cause I feel like that's a really
1: important question. So you're paid in protocol revenues. And so the, uh, the obvious question is, okay, well, where are these revenues coming from? Oh no, um, but so- what is,
0: what is the protocol revenues denominated in?
1: Right, so it's a variety of tokens, and so so it'll see. Okay, so see that chart on the far right. There, it says VLCVX bribe revenue. Uh, the VL in there just means uh, that I've like deposited my CVX tokens into the protocol, and I'm getting governance rights and returns. So the bribe revenue there is in a variety of tokens. Uh, the the the, uh, the dark purple on the bottom of this chart is Frax. So that's a stable coin you're getting paid in. And then the other protocols or the other bar, uh, bars on this chart are other tokens. And so w- the reason why other protocols are willing to pay CVX holders for their votes is they're saying, hey, you have a ton of these voting rights that will send... Uh, like liquidity to my pool, so I will pay you to allocate these voting rights in a certain way. And so, like, they're essentially renting liquidity from convex voters. And so, I know this is like a crazy concept, but basically, like, on chain liquidity is incredibly important. Uh, if I'm a protocol and like, let's say I'm launching a stable coin, um, then like I need liquidity or else my stable coin will lose its peg. Um, or let's just say. Uh, I want like a large, maybe I'm not a stable coin, right? I just have a token and want other people to be able to trade it. Um, like large, uh, buyers or traders can't buy my token on chain, uh, unless there is a large amount of liquidity. So like on chain liquidity is vastly important to having like a successfully a successful, well traded token. Um, and Convex is saying, Hey, if we have a ton of votes and the ability to direct where liquidity flows, uh, so if you have any interest in that, where are like, just, you can rent liquidity or pay our token holders for that liquidity. Uh, and that's been a pretty consistent 20 to 40% over the past, uh, you know, since January of the, of uh, this year. And so there's like, you'll see that, uh, Kind of on the left side, you see vote lock revenue APR and bribe revenue APR. And so this bribe revenue consists generally around 90 plus percent of the total revenue. Uh, so, vote CVX is generating both of these. And like the easiest way to think about this is like almost like bi weekly dividends, right? Like every two weeks, I'm getting a new check basically from uh, a new, de- new like deposits from other protocols that are like, hey, you have a valuable asset that can d- direct liquidity to my pool. Here's some money for it. Like we'll vote on your behalf, basically.
0: Okay, thanks. So so the purple is um, Frax, which is a stable coin. How much of the other colors, the other uh, cryptos that is being denominated and what you're being paid is are stable coins?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I actually have this chart up. So let me just look at it quickly. Uh, so Frax generally is about half of the protocol uh revenue like they are responsible for a good portion of this yield uh because again liquidity is so important to them uh and let's see 1 2 so of the last round let's see they only there's only one other stablecoin so you're mostly getting these this paid in volatile uh, assets um okay. but of course like you have the ability to sell those into whichever assets that you choose
0: got it okay uh yeah that mean i mean some of that went over my head, but I think that makes makes a little bit of sense. Um, but the convex governance token has gone down a lot this year, like you know many other assets. So it's it's uh, gone from like fifty to five, or maybe you know, maybe not that bad, but like close no, to it's, that. No, it's it's so, about that bad. Yeah. Okay. 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 So now you're getting paid twenty six percent on the five, and you know that's like a little bit over a dollar. But at the beginning of the year, that would have been like Ten dollars, so it's the, the 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 dividends are going down nominally, but the yield is, is kind of staying high just because the the token. To, well, so why is the token gone down? If it's non-inflationary and so good, why is the token gone down?
1: Uh, well, that's so you could right because if the token was still let's say fifty dollars, and you can see on that chart on the right, like uh, during the heat of the bull market, right from like. Uh, that December time frame, just until the UST Luna blow up in early May, uh, like bribe total bribe rewards paid to these uh, tokens was you know upwards of ten million dollars, right? In some cases, closer to twenty. Uh, but now we're down into that like three to five million dollar range. Um, so if it was still a fifty dollar token, of course these yields would be much lower because this calculation does run everything based in uh, dollar terms. Um, and so, you know, when broader DeFi has taken a massive hit, like whether or not it should or shouldn't have, or they good, good assets or bad assets, pretty much everything's down, you know, 90% from the highs. Uh, and that's just because there is this massive potential, like there is the chance that like DeFi fails, right? Like crypto is just like never really gets traction, never takes off. Like these are still the most high risk assets that are available, right? Like if you're looking at the risk of like a, a you know a respectable tech stock or even like ethereum ethereum's the riskier option every single time so mm-hmm. i think that's just a, a function of you know this is still such a, a niche market that the the potential of is so far from realized uh that we're going to take hits like this when when broader markets fall apart got you on that happy
0: note guys i think it's we got to uh start plugging the podcast because we're, we're 30 minutes in so Tell us what is the Zero X Research podcast? When does it air? How frequently is it going to air? Who is the you know type of listener who you think would enjoy this? Find value in this? And yeah, where they where can they find uh, out more? Like, is there is there a link we can click? Is there you know you're going to get going kind to of have your own YouTube channel? Where where is it going to air? You know, so uh, Sam, you want to take this?
2: Yeah, for sure. So it's called Zero X Research, um, and it's a, a podcast hosted by analysts, kind of for people who want to think. It, like a crypto analyst. And uh, we're going to be bringing on a lot of interesting guests, interesting researchers from all around the space, and just kind of picking their brains and picking apart their research and and trying to deliver that kind of uh, insightful stuff to our listeners. Everyone's got like a million things that they have to read um and the list kind of just keeps growing so we want to kind of give a an audible way to digest research so that way uh you can kind of learn something on your car ride home or, or something like that so that's uh what we're looking to do it launches on november 2nd and uh it will be available on apple spotify and youtube and i'm sure we can drop uh some some links in the show notes there we go there we go um and who's gonna be the first guest uh, we're going to do internal. We've got, uh, Westie coming on to talk about proof of stake Ethereum and how MEV works in that ecosystem after the merge. So that'll be a really good one that you won't want to miss. Nice. Internal is good. Uh, you got,
0: you know, you've got, you've got an external guest, you know, they're, they're doing their thing, but like internal, you know, they're, they're part of your team. So that, that, that'll be good. I'll, I will definitely be, uh, staying tuned for that episode to air on November 2nd and people are interested in crypto and, uh, listen to this, they they should check that out too. Um, Sam, you know Dan has been like dazzling us with his his charts. I feel like you've been taking a back seat, but I, I got to give the the reins over to you. You know, as a, the, sort of the, the leading man on the, on the research team. Uh, wh- where should we go from here? What 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 are you looking at in the crypto world? I know you brought some charts.
2: Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of most of the charts I brought today are in relation to uh ZK Sync and their 2.0 launch of a ZK EVM. If that sounds like gibberish to you, basically the goal is just to take more activity on Ethereum mainnet and bring it onto a layer above that. Uh which is really crucial because gas fees were up to, you know, $200 back in May of 2021 and that's just not feasible for uh Uh, a system that's supposed to be open and permissionless and and bank the unbanked. Like no one's going to pay $200 for a transaction. And uh, the reason I'm trying to highlight on this chart, basically how Polygon, which is a side chain, uh, don't worry about the nomenclature on that, but it's just another EVM compatible. So Ethereum compatible chain. And as you see when the Ethereum gas fees spiked, so did Polygon's TVL. So this is me trying to say-
0: That's total value locked.
2: Yes, total value lock. So the amount of dollars locked in smart contracts on that chain. So it got up to about 10 billion. And basically what I'm trying to highlight here is just to show the audience that um, if gas fees do pick back up again, if there is something that's more secure than Polygon, like a ZK EVM uh, that ZK Sync is coming out with, then it might make a lot of sense that they would capture a lot of that migration from Ethereum mainnet to another layer. Um, and yeah, if you go up one uh, one picture, Jack, here. Mm-hmm. This is the amount of gas on Ethereum mainnet uh, spent by L2s to settle their transactions. So L2s are secured by Ethereum because they post all the call data or transaction data that occurs on layer two onto layer one. And as you can see, it's just steadily been growing. And now it accounts for roughly 3% of uh, all gas spent on Ethereum mainnet. And I imagine over the next five to 10 years, that's going to gradually move towards 70, 80% of all uh, settlement costs on Ethereum. And then Jack, if you can go to the third chart. Yes. Unless you had a question on that, Jack.
0: No, no, I'll I'll save that for later. Yeah. So this chart, I really, I literally have no idea what any of these words, there's not a word on here that I
2: understand. Yeah, yeah. So this is just to try and give a high level overview of how their ZK, ZK EVM works. Um, it's not equivalent at the bytecode level. It's only taking high level source code. So the smart contract language on Ethereum is Solidity. And basically the whole goal of being EVM compatible is to. Make it so that developers and users, et cetera, can move over to this layer, two with very, very little friction because you don't want them to have to learn a whole new developer language or something like that. So what they're doing is they're taking the solidity code and compiling it into Yule which they can then run through the LLVM compiler framework and get it into a language that is ZKEVM friendly. It's really hard to generate proofs. It's a problem that like a dozen teams are working on. So this is their way of doing it. And although it won't be 100% compatible, like 99% of things will be able to port directly from Ethereum onto the ZK EVM. And a lot of projects have announced that they are, I think, Aave and Uniswap and a couple others. So it's going to be like a really exciting time and uh i i know zk evms are very much in their infancy they're launching on mainnet alpha in two days uh but that means that it's only open for developers and not users like users won't be able to use this tech for probably six months or so
0: so yeah zk is zero knowledge and uh by the way i've always known that it's not like i just looked it up before before this podcast zk <laughs> is just for zero knowledge zero knowledge proofs which i understand is a uh you know Important concept in cryptography. I don't understand why. I'd, I'd love your help on that. And then also, ZK roll up is ZKR. Um, so, wh- why is zero knowledge so important? What is zero, zero knowledge, and why is it so important?
2: Yeah. So there's kind of three angles to try and tackle Ethereum scaling. One is side chain and that's Polygon. They're not secured by Ethereum's validator set at all. So it's not nearly as secure as Ethereum. But then you have two really secure options, which are optimistic rollups and ZK rollups that you mentioned. Uh, optimistic rollups use fraud proofs. So it assumes all the transactions are valid that occur and waits seven days for someone to challenge the validity of those transactions. But then you have ZK rollups, which the, there is no trust. There's no trust assumptions at all. It's all mathematically based. But the problem is, is they're really computationally intensive. Um so that's why what they're building has been so difficult uh but it's really important because it's the most secure it's the best UX um and it's kind of the best tech for long-term scaling so Ethereum's kind of dedicating their road roadmap, sorry to to target the future of of ZK ZK tech
1: Yeah no I think Sam uh, kind of painted the picture there really I think like the big takeaway there is uh, Ethereum like isn't that scalable, and it's like very in its base layer state. Um, you know, like tra- when there's a ton of on chain activity, transactions get uh, more expensive. It's, it's a supply and demand for block space, um, and when they get expensive, like you know, it could be like two hundred dollars to s- execute a transaction, and maybe you're only selling like a fifty dollar asset, right? Uh, so that obviously, like that's not worth it, um, and that's like not. feasible end state for Ethereum. So layer twos, uh, so like basically extensions of Ethereum, like are the way to scale this. Uh, And as Sam said, zero knowledge proofs and like this new technology that's being created uh, and kind of like finalized is like approaching finalization, I should say, uh, is is probably what appears to be like the the most uh, realistic way to actually uh, create like a secure uh, a secure environment with fastest ex- execution uh, that relies on the Ethereum val- like security uh, relies on Ethereum for security.
0: Why are you guys so convinced actually? Yeah. So we'll, we'll uh, stop the chart portion of the, of this um, uh, podcast. So why are you guys so convinced that Ethereum is going to remain sort of the number one? Some people I've already offended some people by suggesting that Ethereum currently is the number one. I actually don't even know if that's true. I mean, you, you probably have an opinion on it i mean in market cap bitcoin is definitely number one i mean you know why not bitcoin uh, people talking about the taproot layer people talk about all, all the stuff that's being bid on bitcoin uh solana's there uh cardano's here uh so so many other l1s um why why lay, layer ones which is i guess kind of like the main thing why sort of you know if if yeah why 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 do you guys like some like ethereum so much and also no not, not that question but if, if a layer one in five years, the dominant layer one is something else that's not Ethereum, why do you think you guys will have been, been wrong? Uh, Dan, how about we start with you?
1: Uh, so the way I see the world right now is there's like two ecosystems that seem to be winning, uh, Ethereum and Cosmos. They're both taking slightly different solution, uh, strategies to like reach their scalable end states. Uh, but they kind of like both have the same pre- premise that's like more of this modular view than this monolithic view. Um, So like the monolithic view is like everything runs on one chain. So like Solana, Um, you know, they've created this new technology. It's like super high uh, throughput. They can run an insane number of transactions, Uh, but like it's still a shaky, uh, still a shaky product. Like it goes down uh, frequently, whereas like the Ethereum network like does not go down. That's something that's kind of like built for it's built for liveness. And so, uh, like, I'll let Sam talk about like why the Ethereum roadmap makes a ton of sense and like what they're doing right. Uh, But I'll kind of hit on like Cosmos and what that ecosystem is and like kind of what that shape is. Um, And so, Cosmos is like essentially a network of application-specific blockchains. So each blockchain is built for one purpose. So let's for like an example of this is. Uh, So on the Ethereum network, you have applications built on top of it because Ethereum is a general purpose blockchain. So it's like creates this base layer security uh, and then applications get populated on top of it. And uh, whereas the Cosmos ecosystem, each app is essentially its own blockchain. So it has its own validator sets and they can like build the rules of this blockchain uh, to specifically facilitate whatever the purpose is. So like Osmosis, is an application-specific blockchain uh, built in the Cosmos ecosystem. And like its validator set is uh, it has its own validators, and like the rules of this blockchain are built to specifically be a decentralized exchange. Uh, so it's essentially where we have like Osmosis in Cos- the Cosmos space, we have like a Uniswap uh, in Ethereum. They're both facilitating swaps between different assets. It's just a totally different approach of how to get there. Uh, But everything in
0: Cosmos is on the uh, Cosmos blockchain, or there are different sort of sub blockchains. And again, to everyone listening, no, yeah, I I don't understand this lingo that I'm saying, but go ahead. So
1: so they're like, they're each their own, like, siloed, very independent blockchains. And then uh, in Cosmos, so like, there's the Atom chain, there's the Osmosis chain, there's. Thor chain, there's SIF chain, there's like all, you know, like, let's just, let's just say there's only three, just for simplicity. Like, sure, so three, how is it all
0: in the Cosmos ecosystem? What does that, what does that mean? So there
1: like to be a Cosmos chain uh, just means you're built with like this, the Cosmos SDK, the SDK is like a development kit. Uh, that's basically just like basically different modules of code that you like, could like plug and play together to create a blockchain. Uh, and then they all use like a proof of stake consensus. Uh, and this kind of like allows them to be like on the same wavelength and then they're all connected through what is called IBC, Inter-Blockchain Communication. So there's this like communication layer where uh, like the Atom Chain and uh, Osmosis, so the Cosmos Hub and Osmosis, two independent blockchains are connected uh, with, with IBC. So if they want to like send assets to each other, they can do that. If they want to send messages to each other, they can do that. Um, and so it's just like in the in in the Cosmos world, you have like this mesh of chains that can all speak to each other. Whereas the Ethereum world, you have like this one base layer of security, uh, this one base layer chain with different app- applications built on top of it. Uh, so it's like a different approach, um, and there's like trade offs to that, right? Like if I'm a developer and I want to build a decentralized exchange, I have to think, okay, do I want to be an application on Ethereum or do I want to be my own specific uh, application specific blockchain that I can like design to be just for my decentralized exchange. Uh, and so some like benefits of being your, an application specific blockchain um, are like if I so my, like front running is a thing in, in on-chain exchanges, right? Like you can see orders in the mempool. And like, if I can see that, and I know you're buying this asset, well, cool. I'm going to buy it right before you, and then sell it right after you. And now I gave you a worse price for my profit. Uh, and so, like, that's something you can mitigate in uh, a decentralized exchange application specific blockchain. Um, and then, like, a big movement we saw recently was uh, like an o like an OG original. Uh, Exchange that was built on Ethereum, so DYDX, it's like a perpetual futures exchange that actually is leaving the Ethereum blockchain to come be its own application-specific blockchain uh, in the Cosmos ecosystem. And the the read like the main re- there's a couple different things they wanted, but the main reason for this was they wanted to maximize the level of decentralization they had. Uh, And they felt that using their own validator set on their own chain, like that gave them the more uh, flexibility, customization, and decentralization uh, than what Ethereum was offering them. So it's just like a different set of trade offs. If you're a developer, like where am I going to build my application? Uh, But both seem to be like really promising because a a network of blockchains that are all communicating with each other is kind of creating like this modular. system of blockchains that like you can still send assets you can still like the ux is still pretty friendly uh just like it is on ethereum uh but again it's just like a different approach to how you're going to scale uh into the future but i'll yeah i'll throw this one kind of over to sam just so we can kind of give like uh, a different view of how ethereum plans to scale
2: yeah for sure i i mean i just think In my head, it makes the most sense for there to be one secure censorship resistant, like very solid and slow moving base layer that kind of secures everything on top of it. I I don't really understand the Cosmos vision with like... Fragmented security, and then trying to figure out IBC, and and hoping that there's no vulnerabilities to be found in there when you swap assets from chain to chain. You know, we see bridge exploits literally all of the time. So I don't want to dabble in what's any bridge, of that. What's the bridge,
0: Sam? What's the bridge?
2: Yeah, a bridge is basically just to get from one blockchain to another. So if I want to go um from Ethereum to Solana, then I have to use a bridge. And those bridges basically lock assets in the bridge and then they get exploited and people steal all the money in them. And this has happened time and time again, probably two billion dollars of bridge, ex- bridge exploits in the last year and a half. So <clears throat> I definitely don't like bridges. I think native assets are a are key in the future. Um, I also just really like the approach that Ethereum is taking. As a, as a Bitcoiner, like I think decentralization is super important at the base layer. And they're prioritizing a slow base layer in exchange for really good security and low hard, hardware requirements to actually help validate the chain. Uh, I, I think that's critical. Uh, and that's why I think ethereum will end up end up being the winner like there's no reason that you can't have somewhat centralized layer twos or layer threes on top of ethereum and even maybe even implement some some type of regulation on these layer twos and layer threes um, so, but so i think
0: sam sam you, you said just as a bitcoiner what is how do you envision the future of bitcoin um and look i you know coming from the macro world i'm familiar with all the narratives of like it's digital gold there's only 20, 21 million of them i'm not looking for that i'm looking for like the technology layer like. What's gonna be, you know, what's gonna be keeping Bitcoin like dominant and like you know, if, if the mo the biggest coin and the most sort of uh, popular coin in people's imaginations, like or, or thought like what yeah, what, what's going to, what's coming on the pipeline? From, lacking,
2: the tech- the way, <laughs> From the tech for people. From the tech yeah. side of things, um I something promising I actually heard on another podcast recently was uh, uh the founders of Starkware talking about how they, sorry, Starkware is an L2 on Ethereum. They're like on the cutting edge of ZK tech that we just talked about. And they do Starks and not Snarks. There's two different kinds of ZK proofs. And Starks, everyone said, no, these can't be done. You're not going to be able to do this in a blockchain. And and they figured it out. And they're really passionate about Bitcoin too. So they're like, if we're like, you know, once we get in a good spot with Ethereum, we'd love to go over to Bitcoin and see if there's any way that we can do it. And there's also people researching how to use ZK proofs with Bitcoin to, to provide some kind of uh. You know, DAP environment on on, on Bitcoin, but uh, outside of that, it's all really speculative. I don't think there's, I think it's years and years out for there to actually be, you know, an Aave or a Uniswap on Bitcoin. Uh, why, why is it that? It's, been, it's
0: the oldest one. It's it's the OG. You think you think that? Um, by the way, you said DAP. That's a decentralized app. Um, so so why is it that the oldest cryptocurrency is is oh it's going to be years out until they have stuff on top of it? What about uh, what's it called? Taproot, you know, I've I've heard these names bandied about, like, like all this, you know, what what's going on here?
2: Yeah, Taproot in relation to the merge, like it took Bitcoin years to get Taproot through, and for you know, the merge also took a long time, but the 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 difference in scale between the accomplishment is is pretty large. Like Bitcoin just moves incredibly slow, but that's also one of its main value propositions. You know, yeah. like it, it is what it is. It's a finished product. There's only 21 million, like you said. Um, so, so yeah, I think that Bitcoin's value is that it moves slowly and then Ethereum is more far out on the risk spectrum. And like, hey, like we're trying to develop a world computer with decentralized ecosystems and finance and gaming and the metaverse. Like, I, I just think that, uh, yeah, Bitcoin's better off trying to maybe work on the light, lightning network and you, you know, doing like micropayments across that as the capacity grows and more channels open up than they are trying to compete with Ethereum on, on, you know, a space that they're clearly the winner on right now.
0: Mm.
2: Makes sense. Dan's, Dan, are there any other competitors
0: other than ETH or Cosmos that you, you sort of have your uh, your eyes on? And yeah, just on the, on the research team, you know, how many of your articles are about things that are not part of the Ethereum or the Cosmos ecosystems, those two ecosystems? How many things do you write that are not about that?
1: Uh, so I'll kind of work... Backwards to the questions. So first, uh, the first question we've met, so we really only focused on like DeFi assets and Layer Ones. Um, you know, we're passionate that like DeFi will be likely to be the first application that's like heavily used uh, for the average user. I think the other application could potentially be gaming, but you know that's really yet to be seen. In really, a whole other conversation. Um, but yeah, so we focus mostly on DeFi, and a lot of that is is currently happening on Ethereum. That's just the largest ecosystem where this is going down. Uh, cosmos is kind of becoming this growing ecosystem that we are paying close attention to as well uh, Solana is another covered asset that we we stay on top of you know we're watching what's going on in avalanche as well um it's really just like my personal view that uh cosmos and ethereum are going to be like the winners here but we do cover you know what's going on in the other layer ones uh, like who's building what like Aptos recently just launched're we're like we're not covering Aptos officially but like this is something we're still paying attention to. Um, You know, these things do like deserve to be uh, explored, even if like my personal views or Sam's personal views, like don't necessarily think that these are going to be the winners. Uh, That's, you know, you have to like give a reason why. Right. So like experimenting on these chains, seeing what's going on uh, is definitely important to do. Um, And so on the Bitcoin question, though, I would probably take the opposite view. This is like in our analyst Slack channel. This this argument goes down at least once a week, I think. Uh, But... Yeah, I think like the flippening where the market cap of Ethereum, uh, like increases to over the size of Bitcoin, uh, I think that's like inevitable, right? Like Bitcoin wants to be like this hard money, which I got. First of all, I'm not bearish or bullish on Bitcoin. Like I'm pretty neutral on the asset. I think what it does is great. I think it's most important quality is like Sam said, um, it's like it's simplicity, uh, right? Like it's just this hard asset with 21 million uh, gold like properties. Uh, But what's the market cap of gold? It's around like 10 trillion, right? Uh, Personally, for me, like Ethereum is trying to build a global digital economy and in in a world in a day and age where like everybody's becoming increasingly ingrained with technology and moving online is like a pretty easy concept for most people to grasp. Like, you know, you walked out, you go to like lunch at a restaurant and you see like a, a toddler just like knowing how to use an iPad, you're like, these kids are growing up with technology. So like the shift to online for that age class is, that's like a no brainer. Uh, and I think that's like, you know, pretty commonly held belief. So like the shift to like an online digital economy, uh, personally, like, that is more valuable than $10 dollars. $10 like that's like we're going to be a, a massive asset class. Uh, digital economies will have massive scale. Uh, I think Ethereum is a very likely winner in this play uh, in that market. And, and so, yeah, I, I personally am a strong believer that Ethereum will be worth more than gold.
0: That makes sense, and um, I, I'm just, I'm saying that like that makes sense. I'm not agreeing or disagreeing, but yeah, I mean the, the global economy really took off once it left the gold standard, like gold, gold, gold is great. You know, don't go wrong. I, I have no, uh, no, no, beef with gold. And, you know, Bitcoin is great too. It's digital gold, but like, yeah, you'll get, you, when you go to the Starbucks, you know, you, you, it's hard to pay in gold, you know, and like if Bitcoin is the hardest money, which I think a, a reasonable case can be made that it is like, you don't want to spend hard money, you know, like Gresham, people always talk about Gresham's law, but yeah, that means that the hardest money will never be spent. And it's like, we'll just live in this like deflationary, world where like no one spends any money, you know, if Bitcoin was the only money, like no one would spend it because it's too valuable to spend, you know? So, so we're all become like King Tut where we just like bury ourselves with all this gold and Right. No and like
1: the lightning payment is like a great use case. Like payments yeah. make sense. But then to your point, why would I want to spend this money? And two, like Ethereum gives me the ability to use stable coins as payment, right? Like I can have one USDC and, you know, or maybe like five USDC and buy a coffee. Um, and that's like a more realistic application than like spending 0.001 Bitcoin on a coffee. Like that tra- that mental translation makes, you know, it's a hard grasp. Um, yeah, I just think stable coins are a, uh, very likely to be the most prominent use case of, uh, blockchains and like, in terms of like daily life transactions. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, that lives on Ethereum.
0: Uh, guys, as we as reach a close, you know, I've asked all these questions to you about crypto. Do either of you have a question for me about Tradfire or macroeconomics?
1: Dude, this is a good one. Yeah, I'd love to hear your like six-month outlook, and uh, like mainly as it pertains to like tech stocks, right? Because in essence, crypto is, trades quite similarly to like a high beta tech stock. So I'd love to kind of get your take on uh, where you see uh, the tech stocks of the world going over the next six to 12 months.
0: Thanks. That, that's a really good question. And... Tech stocks, you know, stocks that are profitable technology companies, uh, they have earnings in the future and those are valued at a certain rate and they're valued according to how fast they grow, how high the quality is. So, like, if you have a company that's reporting, you know, billions and dollars of profit, but it's like, is all this, this network, you know, is, are we dealing with Enron here? Like, maybe the valuation will be a little bit lower, you know, um, but if it's like pure, like, oh my God, this is growing 80% a year and like the cash flows are pristine, you know, that will command a higher price to earnings ratio. Most of the fall in tech stocks this year—I'm talking about the blue chip names, Apple, Microsoft, Google—we'll leave Facebook aside—has um, been the price-to-earnings ratio, forward price-to-earnings ratio, falling because the the P, the price, has gone down. The earnings are still going up; they're maybe not going as much uh, up, up, up as much as they used to, um, because you know, tech stocks had enormous growth in in. 2020, but particularly 2021. Uh, however, it's just been like the, the the valuations have compressed because bond yields has risen. So like the future isn't what what it used to worth. So uh, the future isn't worth what it used to be. So like a company that, you know, the majority of its profits, most are going to be made past 2028. That would be a company that would have been hit the hardest, particularly if it is not profitable now which actually many companies are um you know even even blue chip names you know if you count actual things that do cost money like s- stock-based compensation it may not cost us dollars but it does cost shares which is a form of money i mean that's why people that's why companies buy back their own stock then you know some some companies are not profitable um so that's sort of just like laying out the, the case for why tech stocks haven't performed well this year uh so the first shoe to drop was bond yields rising. Do I think that they will rise farther? Maybe, but I think we're pretty close. Like I, I you know, a 10 year at 5%, like I don't think it's going much higher than 5%, you know? Um, so now it's like 4.1% or maybe a little bit lower. Uh, but um, so the, the question is, is the next shoe to drop going to be earnings. Um I don't know. I mean, Google reported their earnings at Microsoft uh, yesterday, last night, and their revenues actually went up. It's just that their costs went up too. So it's the cost of inflation. Um, So I I guess actually that that is a case that the earnings will go down because revenues do increase, but the costs increase too because of inflation. Um, Yeah. I I mean, you asked me my outlook on tech stocks. I think that whatever tech stocks will do, just because they're so large... The S&P 500 will do as well. The NASDAQ will do. I mean, you know, t- NASDAQ is majority tech stock. S&P 500, you know, Apple is what? 6% of the entire uh, index. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I think we've got another leg down. I think we've got another leg down. That's my question. But I, I, uh, I don't, obviously, don't know it for sure. But I actually, I would say I'm some, I have a reasonable degree of confidence that it, it will go down. Um, just because I don't think bond yields bond yields may stop rising but i don't think bond yields will fall that that's my highest conviction view is that a federal reserve pivot like the p word as people are calling it will which is like you know uh interest rates are actually going to go down like the fed is going oh my god the feds going back to zero that is not going to happen for the first half of 2023 like you know there's no certain things in, in finance but it's like I have the same level of confidence about that that you have that like some L one that you know a lot of people like is just not going to make it. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm pretty confident that uh, there will be no cuts. There there may be the Fed currently the markets hiking uh, projecting oh we get to five percent and we only get to four point five percent, but that's there will no be no like realized cuts. Um, some people say oh the fact that we've we've stopped cutting that itself is bullish. Okay, fine. I don't know, but but that's what I think. Um, Sam, you got a question for me?
2: Dan, that was a good question, a hard one to follow up. But I guess I would ask uh, with the dollar strength, we've seen things like the yen getting devalued and the Bank of Japan intervening by, you know, selling U.S. dollars or yeah, selling U.S. dollars for yen to try and, you know, uh, defend the currency, and then we also see like things like the Bank of England starting to uh, see some stress in, the, in in their pension system. So my question for you would be: even if your base case that you're very confident in that the Fed P word is actually going to end up being you know remaining neutral and staying at that five percent target or whatever you you know your terminal rate is, um, do you think that contagion would potentially force, and specifically contagion amongst other sovereign nation states? Would force the Fed to pivot?
0: Fantastic question. As defined by, if, if a pivot means cutting rates, I think no f- until until like the second half of twenty twenty three at the earliest. But if we're talking about targeted interventions where the Federal Reserve says, "Oh yeah, the, this twenty year Treasury note is looking pretty weak. Uh, we're gonna over the next week, we are going to." Uh, be doing five billion dollars a day, or maybe ten billion dollars a day. Just do just a little liquidity support. You know, just a it's just a facility. We're not pivoting, Sam. It's just a facility. You know, and that's kind of what they did in 2019, where they stopped doing quantitative easing. Quantitative tightening. Um, sorry, yeah, they they were actually reducing their balance sheet, um, and I I think they stopped reducing the balance sheet, but they 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 were not doing quantitative easing in 2019, but they did a little intervention where you know repo rates spiked to uh, very high, and they had a 500 billion dollar standing repo facility where they said look we're going to lend essentially an unlimited amount of money like if the market needed 600 billion they'd make it 700 billion you know it's like uh as much as much money as you need and that's not giving people money that's just lending lending against very sound collateral um so people called that the the qe that wasn't the qe they call like not qe you know so do i think there will be another not qe um yeah definitely and i think that if there is a fed uh it, it, I don't think that's a P word though. Like I, I, I think a true, I think that many people will, will declare victory and say that uh, an intervention will be a, a P word, but I don't think it will be a P word. I think a P word will have to be truly uh, cutting cutting rates, and um, I also don't think that it will do quantitative easing. It will maybe it will do not quantitative easing, which is by like sort of, you know, we're going to, we're going to make something happen. You know, look, you, Sam, you're the bond market. I'm the Fed. We're going to make something happen. Okay. We're going to, we're going to make sure we have a deal. We're going to make sure everything, everyone goes home and you know, is not, is, is happy, but are they going to actually be increasing their balance sheet again? The Bernanke doctrine is that no, that rates like QE should be an extraordinary measure where interest rates should be at zero. And then, Oh, we're at zero, but there's still a depression. Like then we do QE. So it's considered like forbidden kind of, by central banks to do quantitative easing when rates are higher than zero. And we're extremely higher than zero, and we're going to get even more higher than zero. So yeah, my base case is no interest rate pivot until second half of 2023 at the very earliest. Definitely no quantitative easing that is called quantitative easing by the Fed, uh, like a nominal increase of the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, I don't think they're going to sell Treasuries or sell mortgage-backed securities. I just I think they're going to let it roll off, and that uh, will be a maximum of ninety-five billion dollars a month. But it if, if effectively will be less because there are f- fewer mortgage fewer mortgage-backed securities um, that that sort of meet that cap. Um, but yeah, will we have a Bank of England type intervention? Uh, yes, is that my base case? I don't know. It's kind of like 50-50. I just spoke with Lynn Alden, and she's pretty convinced. Um, yield curve control, where the Federal Reserve says. Oh actually the the 10 year treasury yield can't go above 4% and if it does if someone's foolish enough to short the 10 year treasury bond we're going to buy it back from them and you know impose on them a loss that's what the bank of uh the bank of japan is doing with the japanese government bond market at 25 basis points uh no i think yield curve control is a more extreme measure than quantitative easing i think i mean quantitative easing is a um uh, Limited limited amount of purchases like every month, um, whereas yield curve control is targeting a specific level on the yield. And you know, if the yield stays there by itself, you don't you don't have to buy anything, or you can even sell. Um, but quantitative easing is like oh, a certain amount amount every every month. Um, so yeah, that's my base case. Uh, no QE, no Fed pivot, no interest rate cuts, uh, but a targeted intervention to to fix the bottom market. Sure, I mean we're recording this on Wednesday, October twenty sixth, about a week ago, like. Uh, maybe the nineteenth, eighteenth, twentieth, somewhere around there. The the long end of the treasury market was looking very weak. I mean, TLT went from like, which is an ETF that owns like long duration b- treasury bonds, mm-hmm. went from like 102 to like 93 in like a few days, and that's not something that should happen for like the safest asset in the world. Yes, it has tons of interest rate risk, but um, yeah, things are mel- melting down. People are constantly talking about how liquidity is so poor. So I think uh, and it. I'm I'm not focused on the P word. I'm focused on the I word intervention. And yeah, I think, I think that could definitely happen. Um, as early as like it could happen in 2022. Do I think that's my base case? No, but yeah.
2: Okay. And with that outlook, sorry, last question with that yeah. outlook, do you think that equities or bonds can actually rally in the face of all this macro uncertainty and uh, amongst central bankers? I think bonds can rally. Yes. I think,
0: um, the two-year Treasury yield, which let's just say was at a peak of like four or percent, that was pricing in a terminal rate, like the peak of the mountain, the highest the Fed gets in April of twenty twenty-three, at to be five percent. If it's quote only 475 percent, 5, 4. the two-year Treasury yield can stop, can actually fall, and it's been falling over the past um, two days. If I'm right about no pivot then it can't fall that much but it can it can definitely like rally a little bit and you know if you use leverage for like euro dollar futures or something that can be a profitable trade uh, yeah i think 10 year can rally and, you know t- uh, bonds go up yields go down same with 30 year stocks i'm having a little bit of a harder time uh, seeing that picture like i'm talking like longer longer term like 3 to 6 months or even like the next year obviously we're in the middle of like what i would consider a, a bear market rally which is is kind of weak at this point, um like s and p five hundred is like trying to get to like thirty eight hundred, which you know two months ago we'd consider that low, but now we consider that high. Um, stocks, I'm having a little harder time getting there because i I think we are headed for a recession that is quite uh, it's it's not gonna be good. I think we're headed for a recession. and I think like you know, whether we're in it already or we will you know the dating committee will actually say, oh, it started on November third. It doesn't really matter to me, but yeah, economic growth is slowing. Um, not a great time to own stocks. That's just been the playbook, and like a lot of rules, you could throw out the window this year, but I think that's that's still the case. So, so we'll see. Um, unless you have another question for me, I think I think we should end it there. Uh, Dan, where can people find you on Twitter? Sam, where can people find you on Twitter? And where can people find the excellent uh, work of Blockworks Research as well as uh, uh, the podcast, which airs on November second?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm a Smy guy on Twitter, Dan Smith. It shouldn't shouldn't be too hard to find. There's only like, what, one Dan Smith in the world? (laughs) <laughs> Thanks mom and dad still uh, still giving them still giving them heck for that one. But uh yeah, well, Blockworks Research is uh, at Blockworks Res on Twitter and uh, blockworksresearch.com. Uh, yeah, lots of great insights. We have a ton of great free reports out there as well, so even if you're not a subscriber, you can still kind of get a flavor for what exactly it exactly is. We write about what kind of like where our heads at, or what's our he- where our heads are at kind of like what we're focused on. And uh, every time we drop a report, whether or not it is free or behind the paywall, um, the, we do put out a pretty solid uh, Twitter thread kind of just like highlighting important things uh, in that report. So definitely be sure to check out the BlockWork Research Twitter account.
0: And Sam, where yeah. are you on Twitter? And also where can people find the BlockWorks Research daily newsletter? Not the excellent re- uh, newsletter that Byron writes, but the more specific, I think it's called the Daily Debrief. Where can people find that?
2: Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at SWMartin19. Um, Sam Martin is my full name and, uh, for the, the signup link for the newsletter, we always put in like really good commentary on kind of everything you need to know on crypto and then governance related alpha, or like maybe some trade ideas or free NFT mints, uh, or anything along those lines. So it's uh, a nice place to get all the stuff you need to know on the day in like five to 10 minutes. And we can include a link for that in the show notes as well. Wonderful. Dan, Sam,
0: thanks so much. And thanks everyone for watching.
1: Thanks for thanks, having us on Jack.